Welcome to the ASAP podcast, the official podcast of the Association for Critical and Interdisciplinary Thinking. We have a somewhat more relaxed intro now, but we are still hoping to provide you with thought-provoking and stimulating conversations with researchers from all kinds of backgrounds and from all over the world. As always, you can find out more about us at www.acid-science.com. And now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. So, hi everyone. I'm Manuel Brenner, and today I'm speaking with Noah Weber. Thanks a lot for joining us on the ACID Science Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. As usual, I'll start with a short introduction on your background. You got your master's degree in data science and applied mathematics in Vienna and are now CTO and head of machine learning at Solaris Therapeutics, a company dedicated to finding drugs for diseases by employing modern machine learning and data science techniques. On the side, you are also an active educator and science communicator, for example, creating Udemy courses, answering questions on stock exchange, which most programmers will know as their most valuable resource during, during the daily life of, of debugging, for example, and also teaching courses at Technicum and TU Vienna. I think the, the primary topic we will be talking about is the wider field of silico, in silico development of medication and drugs, but also more concretely, the work your company is doing in that regard. So we'll hopefully manage to get into like the, the wider ideas behind this approach and also some of the technical details and some of the breakthroughs in, breakthroughs in recent years. But we also share an interest in, in the question of how big data will transform medicine as a whole. For example, when it comes to understanding the costs of aging, but also in wider regards with respect to individualizing medicine by giving it a more solid data-driven fundament and also, caused by by allowing bioinformatics new techniques and new developments that haven't been possible previously. So I suggest starting with the basics and a very general question. Why do we assume machine learning or why is machine learning so helpful when it comes to developing drugs and changing the shape of, of biology in the 21st century? Right. So um, generally, the, the topic of AI in drug discovery is not so um, young. We have seen spin-offs and companies being started as, as long as um, eight to 10 years ago that were applying different methods to <clears throat> find possible medic medication for, for the drugs in question. But, but looking at it from a higher level overview, the, all the involved components in the drug pipeline um, are very, very complex. Um, starting from the initial experimentation that we now, call, that we now do with simula simulation in silico, all the way to the lab and experiments and synthesizing these molecules, these, these processes are very cumbersome, expensive and long. So it was natural that people, as this hype around machine learning started approximately 10 years ago, uh, they tried to tackle these problems with machine learning and see what can they do with it. Can they improve certain parts of it? And I guess that's the general philosophy behind machine learning. It's not you trying to build some end-to-end -end system that's super intelligent and, and that can do everything like a black box. It's rather pragmatically attacking some parts of, of already um, existent systems and trying to automate that. It's all about automation. And previously, we achieved automation by writing code and 
looping through, iterating through some elements. Now we have data and some more, more advanced statistical algorithms that can basically learn these actions and then repeat them. Um, that's like a high level overview of how, why, and what's, what's the history. Yeah. So you mentioned automating a lot of processes and when it comes to developing trucks and the, the way it is currently approached is, is usually done by, by brute force or by, by simply trying out a lot of things. So this is probably the, the, the question where it comes in most handy to just automate this brute force aspect of developing trucks, but there's also more sophisticated layers of, of actually understanding or using machine learning techniques to, to understand better how certain molecules could interact in the, in the body and achieve their goal of, for example, fighting diseases. Exactly. Yes. So the, the, the way if we were to dig down a little bit deeper and, and <clears throat> uncover what, what happens, uh, it's basically there are a couple of therapeutic therapeutic approaches in tackling the diseases. So we can we can try going straight from gene, from the DNA basis. We can start tackling it from the RNA basis, and we can also try inhibiting these proteins from the protein basis. Um, why is the protein inhibition interesting? Because every disease has a pathogenic protein associated with it. And if we can learn how to tackle this protein, we can effectively combat the disease. Um, what happens next and what, what allows uh, to automate these brute forces is that as the research of chemistry and biology has been undertook for very extensively documented databases of, of proteins and molecules and atoms were, were written, there's a lot of information that can allow us to model these interactions in silico computationally. So no longer do you have to sit in lab and see uh, how two molecules or a protein and a molecule are going to interact, but you can basically mod, mod, model and simulate this interaction on your computer. And once you are able to achieve that, then you can start asking questions. What are the interactions that happen when targeting a certain pathogenic protein? And the thing that we do at Celeris Therapeutics, so as I said, there are companies that out there that try to do <clears throat> um, similar things, meaning apply machine learning in, in drug discovery. But what we do at Celeris Therapeutics that's so different is, I would say, mainly two things. The first one is that we are not trying to inhibit the proteins. The protein inhibition will only be realistic in less than 20% of all the pathogenic proteins, meaning there is a huge set of undruggable proteins out there. So what does the undruggable mean? Meaning you cannot find a molecule that will successfully inhibit with it and with that tackle the disease. Um, now you'll be thinking, well, this fact is kind of crazy. Like, how can this even be possible? Well, I'd like to think about it as 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 same as discovery of, let's say, CRISPR gene editing, right? The, the general population wasn't even aware of some of these things until after the Nobel Prize for the gene editing, etc. And I believe that in the next years, this targeted protein degradation, so meaning the technology of attacking or tackling the undruggable proteins, will also 
uh, win a Nobel Prize for the scientists that that started uh, talking about talking about this. But yeah, so we are what we are essentially doing is applying machine learning towards the the targeted protein degradation. And the way that works is, as I said, the huge set of potential pathogenic proteins is out there. And what we need to do is find a molecule, find a molecule that binds to this pathogenic protein and that then that subsequently allows binding uh, another protein called E3 ligase. This E3 ligase then activates a one process that then allows degradation. So to, to keep it short. So basically what, what happens is that we are looking instead of instead of looking at interaction between two molecules with targeted prote- protein degradation, you are looking at three molecules that you need to find smart ways how they interact together. So that's the first component of, of Celeris Therapeutics and that, that makes us unique. And we, we have actually realized that this is really a great way to go since other other companies started copying copying us and uh, just started applying machine learning in this, uh, this um, space. And the second point that we uh, apply heavily and that, that goes more into the discipline of machine learning is that we are huge believers in geometric deep learning. Meaning, if you think about it, the native way to represent molecules and atoms and their interactions is not in Euclidean space, right? Meaning the the closest point between two um, between two elements or two points is not is not a straight line. And I mean, when you look at the molecules and, and atoms, what they really are are graphs. So atoms can be looked at as, as nodes and then edges represent all the different um, relationships and communications between atoms on the atom level, on the molecular level. And then if you can model all these relationships, <clears throat> processes, properties on these edges and then <clears throat> um, connecting the nodes, then you can successfully mimic all the necessary information in order to predict the, the wanted interaction, meaning in order to predict how these three molecules uh, that need to interact are going to interact. So that's on a high level overview what we do and what's our unique approach on, on, on um, yeah, tackling this problem. Yeah, this idea of geometric deep learning is also, I think, relates nicely to, to neuroscience to a degree because in principle, uh, like, uh, the most natural way for us to think about what's happening in the brain and the brain itself is always embedded in Euclidean space because it's a it's a 3D object, but in a different way, we are starting to realize that a lot of the things are going on in the brain are also defined by, or would, are described by, better described by non-Euclidean properties. For example, you have interactions between um, neurons that are far apart, but so that the connectome is more important or they are synchronized by global brainwave activity that then allows neurons that are very far apart in the brain to, to communicate with each other. So like, time and, and space, as they are defined in, in, in the Euclidean co- conception of space-time, then kind of become smudged and, and intermingled with each other because the, the defining features are not the Euclidean properties, but the connectome and the synchronization. So I guess these shifts in perspective can be really helpful in understanding the function of some of these 
things. Mm-hmm. Maybe to to Agreed. sorry to to just repeat the, the central points you you made. There are these. I like to to also make sure that I understood it correctly. So you you have diseases usually not always, but but probably most of the time associated with these pathogenic proteins. And you can basically tackle them in different ways. And the, the usual way or the classical approach of fighting illness was to try to inhibit the pathogenic proteins, but that only works in, in a very small number of cases. So you need new techniques and this degradation is, I don't know if it's already used too much in practice, but this seems to be like a new development that will probably allow us to tackle many more illnesses. Is that correct? This is very much correct. And just to connect to your last point that you said of how just rare it is, you have 10, approximately 10. I mean, they are, they're always coming new papers, but very low number of uh, ternary complexes, meaning the degraded um, the, the degradation technique applied successfully. So the, the, just the novelty and the front lines of, of this approach in tackling diseases is super scarce. Even the data is not there. So the way you would need to mimic the data is basically dissolving this process into multiple modules or components. Um, so not tackling it straight up because data is not even there to, to learn. We don't even know how do these molecules look like. So what we need to do is basically, um, as I said, break down this process of targeted protein degradation into multiple modules and then try to learn the individual modules and then at the end connect them together yeah so maybe this is the right point to do step a little bit deeper in, into the pipeline you are developing and the different steps you can take and how graph neural networks for example and geometric deep learning techniques play into this yeah sure definitely so <clears throat> on the high level overview what happens is the following picture right i said you have, when you want to build this ternary, meaning three molecules complex, you have the protein, pathogenic protein, the degrader molecule, that can be anything, uh, protag, molecular glue, etc., and then the E3 ligase, right, and another protein. The thing that I didn't say is that this degrader molecule is actually com- com- comprised of three molecules, three small molecules, meaning two ligands, and one bridge fragment connecting the two ligands. So you can imagine, starting from the left side, you have a protein, then you connect protein to the ligand number one, also called the warhead. Then you connect the ligand number one to the bridge, meaning the fragment. Then you connect the bridge to the another ligand and then to the final E3 uh, protein. So all in all, uh, you have five molecules, some of them big, when you look at them from three-dimensional perspective, like proteins, some of them super small, like these linkers or the fragments, meaning the bridges that, that I said. Um, and you need to find ways, basically, to connect all of them. Now, where the fun really begins is when you look at the fact that the space of potential molecules is 10 to the 60th. Now, I don't think you need advanced mathematics degree to understand that this is not humanly possible to parse and you need some really smart algorithms in order to basically parse and navigate this uh, space effectively just doing it brute force and trying every possible combination 
you can forget about it. So what happens is that what, what we are modeling is, and there's also a patent that, that we submitted on, on, on this uh, side, is that um, once you understand the fact that there is this huge space of molecules and that there's these five molecules interacting, you can break it down to the tasks of protein, initially protein-protein interaction. So first, you want to see just um, very high level of whether the protein or pathogenic protein and the E3 ligase are going to interact at all, right? So if they are um, not exhibiting any interaction, then no degrader can help there. This is the first subtask. The second subtask is determining the drug target interaction. That, that means the protein ligand interaction. Right? So remember, the ligand is that, for, that two pieces in the, in the degrader molecule. So the ligands are also very small molecules, and they need to interact with the protein in a certain way. Now, when I say in a certain way, this is where we enter even another dimension of complexity, because interaction is not one-dimensional. So what do I mean by that? When we think about interaction, maybe we think like you put Lego pieces on, on top of each other, right? So they are interacting only on based on their shape dimension. But in, the, in this small molecular and atom level, the interactions happen on multiple or multitude dimensions. So chemical laws, biological laws, physical laws, geometrical laws need to be satisfied in order for in order for this interaction to be valid right so you need to minimize the enthalpy minimize the energy etc etc so there are multiple um, criteria that need to be satisfied in these interactions and the 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 tricky part uh, that we tackled in in Celeris is how do you and maybe that's again coming to a human resources point. How do you make sure that you you have the people that are experts in all of these disciplines that understand the requirements and then very importantly are able to quantify and encode these requirements into data? Because if it's not into data, it's very hard for the for the machine learning model to learn, right? So, um, as I said, we have the protein-protein interaction as a module, the drug target or the protein ligand interaction as the module that we want to uh, determine. And then uh, the very final module, and that's, that's the biggest module of, of them all, is figuring out once you know your potential candidates and you uh, are able, in, in a sense, to filter out this huge space of potential candid candidates, then the, the question becomes... Uh, how do you build the degrader molecule and how do you make sure that this degrader molecule is fitted together with the two proteins at hand, right? So again, degrader molecule entails the ligands and the bridge connecting, meaning the fragment. And uh, are you making sure that these all molecules are interacting optimally? And once Obviously, in this huge um, ternary complex prediction module, there are multiple disciplines that we are from machine learning that we'll sample from. For example, active learning, um, Bayesian optimization to make smart steps or choose the next candidate molecules um, smartly so that we don't have to brute, uh, brute force parse the whole space, etc. And then once you have your potential candidates, um, 
we have a, I mean, once you have your potential ternary complex candidate, then the question becomes, what do you do with it, right? So it's never deterministic in the sense that there is one and one only uh um, the greater molecule that you find, but there are multiple candidates that then we validate to our, through our wet lab. So it's not only a software endeavor from our side at Celeris, but we also have set up a wet lab in in, uh, in Graz, a huge one, over 500 square meters, where we will also try to validate this uh, in, in our wet lab. So the question becomes, okay, you have uh, gave me some propositions and there are 10, 50, 100 molecules, then how do we how do we make sure that we can validate this? There is the option of doing it ourselves, but we also have uh, collaborations with other companies that that just want, want our software. Um, yeah, that's basically short and sweet of it. And I just have to add one, one caveat here. So what we also do, we don't only... Um, try to find these interactions from the known molecules. We also use generative models to create novel molecules. So for example, we have a module that creates novel mole- that creates novel bridges, meaning the fragment connecting the ligands, uh, completely new, completely synthetical, meaning it this molecule doesn't exist anywhere else and it's and it was generated by us synthetically in order to conform uh, to our needs and requirements for the current case. So it's not only parsing the space and finding the optimal conformation or the combination, but it's also gener- generating the molecule in order to you know, fit all the requirements <clears throat> and, and at the end of the day, create the ternary complex. Yeah, when, when you talk about spaces with 10 to the power of 60 molecules, it's pretty obvious that a wet lab will never be able to to, to create all of these molecules and just try them out by brute force, but basically are always looking for ways to reduce the size of this extremely high dimensional space. And of course, this is also something, I guess, very similar to what happened in AlphaGo, where you also have a space that is of potential moves that is usually extremely large and you have to do a search in this space and you have to try to, try to be smart about how to pass through this space while kind of finding optimal directions where to look and optimal directions where, where to pursue your, your tree search and like look closer to to obtain a sensible molecule. You also mentioned that you, you need to actually generate completely new models. And we also talked previously about how recent advances, for example, with DeepMind's AlphaFold can come in very handy here on this front because now you, you actually have ways to create or like project the structure of, of certain molecules just from the amino acids for example yes this this is this has been actually a big enabler for us um, and the reason for it is fairly simple our modules and our machine learning approaches I already said they are based on the geometric deep learning but they are the way we apply the geometric deep learning is on the surfaces. So we want to know the 3D um, shape of the protein that we are looking at hand. So we are not only satisfied with the intrinsic chemical biological properties, but we also know and want to primarily determine all the interaction from 
the shape of the protein, meaning from the pockets, from how it looks like, etc., etc. Where the problem becomes um, is that the way we have done this in the past, meaning determining the 3D shape of the protein, was again experimentally. So there was research groups, tens of thousands of, I mean, hundreds, thousands of PhDs and postdocs gathering this information, validating it, etc., etc., and then publishing it on something like PDP, protein database. And the problem is a lot of those, I mean, we have made great strides and there has been a huge progress, but we weren't finished. A lot of those proteins, we still didn't know the 3D shape of. And what Alpha uh, Fold did so amazingly is that they not only made this model and actually proved that they can do it, they also open sourced, meaning now there's not only open source version of the AlphaFold, but also the, the database of the generated 3D molecules, of the uh, generated 3D shapes of the proteins. So we, you can leverage now, not only in our case in Celeris, um, these actually how the proteins look like, but you can also use it in other uh, approaches too. The, the flip side of it is if they only release the, the model, then you would have to have an in-house team that understands the model, builds it, and then makes the prediction that they need. So they really made great strides in you know helping the scientific work and enabling a lot of um, subsequent research. Um, that's that's the part of how AlphaFold helped us. But I also want to say one thing that you, that you said as you were introducing the AlphaGo, right? Uh, AlphaFold. Um, what they did, I mean, this challenge, they, they basically approached the challenge. So same like Kaggle, there has been occurring ch- challenge in the scientific community where they try to basically fold the proteins. That's the process of converting the proteins from the amino uh, sequence to the 3D coordinates. Okay, that's the challenge. But this has been running for years. And what they su- successfully have done is they said, and I mean, the, the paper is big and there's the, the architecture is huge. But I mean, one of the basic premises behind it is, you know what? Um, we are computer scientists and we don't know, we have in-house experts, but we don't know that much about proteins. We are not going to go too deep into encoding this chemical information. We're just going to build a huge deep learning architecture and let the architecture learn all the nuances. So what they leveraged was the fact that the deep learning pipelines are essentially feature learners. So instead of encoding the features and doing the feature engineering, you just feed it enough good data and it will learn all the features and caveats that it needs in order to make successful predictions. And this is also one approach that we are leveraging at Celeris. So we have the in-house experts that encode the chemical biological information till a certain point, but there is just marginal returns after a while because this space is too complex. So after you're done with with encoding the essentials, you you use the deep geometric deep learning pipelines to learn all the necessary features provided the data that you have provided. Yeah, this reminds me of this famous story that is um, frequently told in the, in the context of these early language models by IBM. I think it was IBM and they were trying to basically construct a, a language model and natural language processing. And so there, it is, at least there's this rumor that the IBM CEO then at one point said, whenever I fire a linguist, uh, the performance of my model goes up 
So basically, this is <laughs> difference between expert knowledge and what human beings explicitly think language is like our language actually works and in the same sense we, we have some basic knowledge of of how chemical and biological interactions should work but sometimes leaving these deep learning architectures alone to really extract the optimal features can be can actually be better than the ones human beings have extracted in, in previous decades through their hard work it can be a bit frustrating but yeah there's always this interplay between what we can hard code and where our expert knowledge comes in and what the machine finds out by itself. And I think recent years have shown that it usually is, we should put more emphasis on, on what the machine extracts. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I agree totally with you. I think there's this even funny saying, uh, um, people lie, something lies, but data doesn't, I mean, just let the data learn the necessary information and yeah. Yeah, sometimes the data still lies because human beings <laughs> try to yeah, compile the data. But in, in principle, it, it's harder to 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 introduce unnecessary bias and noise. There's also this recent book by by Daniel Kahneman and collaborators called Noise, and it, it's also about like how how horrible human judgment and expert <laughs> judgment tends to be when you compare it to very simple even linear models based based on certain objective criteria. So it, it, it can be mm. very beneficial to, to try to, to take the human out of all of these processes. Yes, definitely. Um, but I think at the end, what we are converging towards, and I guess we are, we will also t touch upon the, the artificial general intelligence and reinforcement learning is that all these systems um, at the end, are not going to be end-to-end. -end. They are rather going to augment our processes. And as I said, when you when you approach the drug the, the, this, the development process, right, it's, it's cumbersome. You need billions, you need years to develop it. Instead of saying, okay, let me now solve it all in a matter of seconds. No, just take one process, meaning the initial part of the research, and try to automate that given the data and the expertise that you have. I think this is a more realistic scenario towards moving something reasonable instead of trying to, you know, build a system be all and all. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that point. It's usually more modular in, in the approach that you can figure out how to automate certain steps. And in others, it's still much more efficient to have a human being in the dupe. Agree 100%. We can, again, take a, a bit of a closer look at, at the pipeline. So you basically start out, or one of the ideas is to start out with a pathogenic molecule that you want to tackle and degrade. And then you try to work from this pathogenic molecule to, to create the, the degrader molecule. So maybe we can also talk about some of the details, what kind of methods you're using. You mentioned um, geometric deep learning and craft neural networks, but uh, is there some intuitive way of, of thinking about how you can train on the data or what kind of data you train on and how basically what architectures you, you're using? Right, sure. Let's let's take one simple example that I think the listeners could could understand without too much um, too much background knowledge. So if we if we think about protein protein interaction. Right. So that's that's one of the initial steps in the pipeline. And the protein-protein interaction is also something that you would model and use in the protein inhib inhibition. Because what you essentially say is that, yeah, I don't need a complex 
structures that I'm going to bind and degrade, but I just try to inhibit with additional protein, right? Okay, so you have these two proteins, and what what you essentially, and as, as, I, as I noted noted previously, you have these huge, I wasn't even, because my background wasn't from, from the chemistry, biology, I wasn't even aware that you have these huge databases modeling all kinds of um, different areas and sub-disciplines in biology, chemistry, but especially if focusing on, on drug discovery, you have, for example, um, PDP or PDP bind. That's a huge database describing not only the, for example, uh, 3D structures of the protein, uh, its <coughs> resolution, uh, chemical properties, biology, but it's it's a huge curated data set that has been building on for decades. So we are not talking about some project that has been started pre- uh, a couple of years ago. This has been active research for decades and literally people are writing papers as soon as they have new information about shape or um, process or interaction just from a single protein. So you, know, can, you can imagine uh, research groups are incentivized for decades to fill this database. And it's free of access. It's MIT. You can access it. And you have all sorts of uh, different information there. Right? So this is the initial starting point. Obviously, we have other databases that, that contain similar information. But starting from this, you can cover most of the ground, ground regarding proteins. And then the next question becomes, okay, interaction. What does interaction mean? Okay, and then we describe it interaction in a chemical or biology, biological sense means. One definition and the, the subsequent question, this is great, how do I translate this to data? Not only data, but labeled data because in order to learn, I need to exp- explicitly show my algorithm what does interacting mean, right? And <clears throat> what our, for example, in the protein-protein interaction uh, uh, case uh, means there is this concept of protein docking. Um, and this protein docking is, uh, let's, let's call it abstractly a simulation that allows you to determine the optimal interaction between protein and a molecule, right? Optimal interaction means, as I said, not only on one dimension, the shape, but also multiple laws and requirements need to be satisfied. The energy needs to be minimized. It needs to be at a certain angle, et cetera, et cetera. So there are multiple requirements. And the problem is these docking softwares, there's literally now, if you Google it, there's like hundreds they are good, but they are extremely slow. So you can imagine if you were to pass this huge space of proteins, you are not satisfied with the slow software. Even though there is a lot of research and research groups published it out, they are coming not from a data point, but from the hard co- coding point of view, where they hard code this information and they try to simulate it, etc. So this protein docking, uh, is something that we are trying to avoid with the protein-protein interaction, and that's the process that we are automating with with um, machine learning or geometric deep learning. And the the current uh, increasements are hundred thousand times. So if you were to batch this, batch a huge set of of proteins or molecules, you will be able to at least parse a a reasonable subset of this data with the increasement got, gotten from the machine learning approach. Have you 
been able not to do that and you have basically used uh, docking approaches, this would not be feasible. So this is what we are modeling with the protein-protein interaction. We are trying to determine this um, this conformation or a specific uh, specific shape or the pose as these two molecules are interacting. And that's what we are trying to model. And as I said, the main principle is you got the data. How do you create the labels? Okay, you got the labels. How do you create a reasonable representation of the data? So what does reasonable representation mean? You have your PDP database, you have your protein, as you and you have your 3D, you have your 3D look. So it's a so it's one specific file format where you can basically visualize it, let's say as in matplotlib, Python library, you can scroll and you can see how your 3D object looks like. Okay, great. Now the next question becomes: how do I translate this 3D look into graphs? Right? And then after you have not only translated the 3D information and the coordinates into the graphs and you have encoded the necessary nodes and edges, the next question becomes, okay, I have the, ge I have the geometric information. What other information do I want to encode? Do I want to encode some chemical information, physical, etc.? You're done with that. And as we said, there is a point of no return, meaning you can encode, but the more human bias you introduce the worst. So we we have a couple of features that we generate there. And then from that point of on, it's all, let's keep it specific, convolutional, uh, geometric convolutional layers with a deep architecture that basically allows um, that basically allows to learn these features based on the given uh, graph input. Um, that's the high level overview. And I have to say one very important caveat. Obviously, they're, they're not that much. There are a couple of groups out there that that researched. Uh, they're, they're, there have not been commercial success, but they have researched something similar. The main difference is that these architectures, and I think we see that off, uh, very, very often in academia, these architectures are huge architectures that have no commercial value. Remember, we are also software as a service company. When our clients give us a protein, they expect, or a batch of proteins, they expect fast results. So what we have to ensure is not only uh, accuracy, but we also have to ensure speed, meaning the 100,000 times increasement is there. We have to ensure generalizability because uh, the potential set of pathogenic proteins is huge. And these proteins have different shapes, different characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. You have to make sure that you really learn different kinds of proteins and their representations. That's the generalizability. And then also very important is explainability. I mean, people always talk about this. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of the next trends where the uh, next trend in research, next trend in, in commercial applications. But at the end of the day, the, the, the client group are the people that are consuming this. And they are not going to be able to consume it without gaining at least some sort of confidence in what this system is predicting. I mean, at the end of the day, you are investing, you, you get a batch of potential degrader molecules, and then you're going to invest time in a laboratory, you know, um, analyzing this further and further. So you need to also gain confidence in the system that, that these molecules can really be synthesized 
that the outputs are validated, etc. So these are all the different steps that we ensure in our uh, software as a service, right? So it's not only about prediction, but it's also about making sure that these predictions are fast, reliable, and generalizable. I think you already moved or like half explained one of the questions I was thinking about, which is this, yeah, the, the question of generalizability, because um, basically you, you take proteins and you take the 3D structure and you translate that into this graph neural network structure onto that graph structure, and then you apply the CNNs on that graph structure. So my, I was wondering how general that graph representation of, of proteins is, if there's just one very large model that you can think of that basically translates all the proteins we know from these databases to one kind of representation, or if, if you can think of using different graph representations for different tasks, for example, if you're in that case, are looking explicitly at, at finding protein, at, at protein degradation, then you need a different graph representation of these. Or do, do you only take, is it, it is more like a language embedding in the context of transformers where you then like the CNNs or the transformers apply to the already embedded version of the proteins. This is correct. The second, the second remark is correct. That's exactly what we are aiming for. So <clears throat> instead of curating it and adjusting it for different protein families or different protein needs or client needs, we have one size fits all that's not too complex, but that still is, has learned and is able to infer on all of the potential proteins out there. Right. So um, it's a very tricky task because you're balancing on two extremes. At the one hand, you are trying not to make it too complex, and with that you will get a very slow system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the other hand, you are also trying to make it accurate, and uh, the the best way to make it accurate is to make it complex, yeah, and huge, and with a lot of layers, weights, and etc. So it's it's one of those both worlds where I guess the most important step is validation and being able to explain uh, the, the, what, what you are doing with your system. So validating it, making sure that these systems on all different edge cases perform optimally. And this now introduce, uh, introduces a completely different subject that I think it's highly, highly relevant is the MLOps and the, you know, the ability to actually commercialize and um, streamline the machine learning development. So instead of, you know, you experimenting with whatever, whatever, there are standard tests, guidelines, and approaches that make sure that as you are developing new models, you are testing all these edge cases and making sure that it's validated, right? Um, yeah, that's that's what we are trying to balance. And uh, this, this is our main focus. So definitely not make it tailored, general, general enough, but not too complex. Yeah, I think we can also later go into this whole question of MLOps and how do you debug and test your models and maybe also in the context of explainability, how can we actually ensure that these models perform well and when it comes to developing medication and drugs, then it also becomes the risks are increasing because if we, if we make a prediction, we need to make pretty sure that this is it's a sensible prediction before we actually inject it into live beings. And so maybe as a next step, then you, you make these predictions of these molecules. And then, so what I was wondering if, 
you're trying to optimize the process to, to make sensible predictions. So basically you want to end up with a molecule that best serves your purpose of, of surfing as a degrader, but how do you basically define your loss function or what, what are you optimizing for in the end and where does this data come from that you're optimizing on? Yes. 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 So the, the choice now i'm gonna i'm gonna try it so as i said at the beginning the the patent is already out there we have published it a month ago uh, i'm not sure if it passed um if if it has passed all the all the checks so i'm not sure how deep am i allowed to even speak before it's really officially out there but i'm gonna try to try to keep it still um informative enough so that that one can actually extrapolate on what's happening here uh, the, the the definition of the loss function and what you are tr actually optimizing in order to learn this um, is a sum of is a sum of loss functions of or let's say the optimization or, or objective of optimizations of multiple submodules. Right. So you are talking about for initially protein-protein interaction and there is a loss function there meaning you're trying to uh trying to increase or uh, you're trying to minimize the negative uh ne negative docking score meaning the fitness fitness of of the uh, proteins interaction okay that's one one function where, where you are optimizing this interaction between proteins right then you have subsequent moving parts the subsequent mo moving parts is what we um, another loss function that we call, call constraint fit, fitness. This constraint fitness is basically a loss function when you already defined your proteins, but now you are introducing your degrader molecule with ligands uh, into the picture. Right? So you are trying to determine, given the degrader molecule and the proteins that are uh, probable to interact, different conformations and poses, how does this function evaluate? Right. So instead of being at one huge pipeline where there's one loss function that optimizes for all, it's actually a weighted loss function where we have multiple objectives that we are trying to optimize upon and then make uh, the subsequent choices of the molecules that are optimal for the interaction. So that's that's the basic approach in, in what's happening in our um, objective loop. And now that we have defined the generic pipeline, you mentioned at one point that you are also in general trying to stay as general as possible but you're also focusing on, on more concrete illnesses is it correct that's 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 correct yes so um what there there has there has been actually um there are two parts to this so <clears throat> we we feel as if like um you still have to have a clear goal in order to approach that goal. But if if you start limiting yourself too early, then you will realize that initially in your architecture of the system, you, you are too late to change it. So we are building it as generic as possible, but we plan especially to focus on certain types of um, diseases. For example, one of the commitments that we already officially made is Alzheimer's disease. So we, I mean, every disease is different, right? Maybe from a high level point of view, you just know you get sick, something happens in your body, whatever. But you cannot attack every disease as the same. Let's talk, for example, about um, um, cancer, right? So cancer is very specific and there are different approaches, not only from the protein level, but from the 
gene level, from the RNA level, the different research units and different companies are trying to tackle this. And the, the cancer is very tricky. Um, very tricky because of the mutations that are happening on different types of cancer. So as uh, the moment you have found potentially, I mean, that's I'm, I'm not generalizing, there are, there are certain categories that as long as you have found uh, one solution, they have mutated and you find yourself in an, another problem. So, for example, we have discarded now initially uh, cancers. We are focusing explicitly on Alzheimer's, um, Huntington's and uh, other generative diseases. Uh, and we will basically not only create the pipeline, um, the software generally, but we will focus on these diseases in our uh, laboratory. So as we create molecules for the laboratory, we are then going to validate them in the lab. That's aspect one. And the aspect two is depending on the client needs. So as I said, we are already collaborating with, with pharma companies and there they have uh, different objectives, different goals and we also want to cater to their needs you know so instead of focusing and saying you know this doesn't work for us no we are able to tackle this but just we personally as sellers we initially want won't be won't uh, uh, tackle these problems yeah, and with for example Huntington's it's, it's a very different case to when you compare it to cancer because there's a very like well-defined genetic mutation and there's very clear heritability and, and very clear risk structure and it's also well understood i think what what goes wrong in the body to, to cause it but it's it's still a terrible disease that is absolutely horrifying for, for everyone involved in it but at the same time there's really no therapy at this moment in time yeah exactly exactly that's that's the unfortunate case um and I mean, regarding the, you now mentioned the therapies, uh, there's also this, I think, um, maybe a, a little bit of dark side to the, the whole story about th therapies. I think the general public is not even aware that for some of the commonly known scary diseases, there are already very su successful therapies out there. So, for example, if we talk about certain cancers, there's this healthy therapy based on... Um, based on gene technology that, that is highly, highly successful. And uh, I'm not sure about the statistics, but we are talking about 90% plus success rate on, or, or on, the, on the cancer patients. The, of course, there is a catch-22. We are talking about uh, almost a million in costs for a single treatment. So it's, again, the question of democratizing this technology because, I mean, The pharma companies are trying to justify the prices for their research by setting, I mean, the, the setting these high prices for the for the therapies, but the cost of generating, I mean, not researching, but generating the cure is not that high. So there is also this this question that even if we were able to tackle this and solve this, to whom are we catering? So are you doomed if you're not in a certain country or a certain region? Um, yeah, it's it's a very tricky question. Yeah, the, the pharma industry is also famously, yeah, f I think falls easy easily falls prey to to bad incentive structures that that then tend to, to have a strong influence on on societies at large. There's this opiate crisis in the U.S., for example, a famous example of there being bad incentive structures by pharma companies incentivizing doctors to, to prescribe 
medication. And then there's, I think, 1.2 opiate prescriptions per person per year in certain regions of the US in the 2010s. And now you have an extreme surge in opioid overdoses and despair. And these things tend to happen and <laughs> tend to, yeah, yeah, cause a lot of problems. So I think that it's a very interesting topic in itself to, to think about how do we actually change medicine or how do, how do we ensure that these developments actually lead to, to a lot of good. But I, I think in general, what you, what you are trying to do increases or decreases in, in the computational burden by factors of 1000 or 10,000 also will make it much easier to, to do research in a, in a cheap way. We also saw that like in, in a very different context with these um, general uh, generative models of that allow us to, to use AI to, for example, age people's faces. And then there was this movie, The Irishman by Scorsese, where they used AI to, they didn't use AI, they used like old school techniques to, to age him by the main actor by 15, 20 years. And it cost him like 1 million and it was extremely cumbersome. But then two years later, some, some random guy with his home computer came along and just used the, the most advanced techniques in, in image processing using AI techniques. And then he basically did a better looking version of this in his own room. So I think with these advances in AI and increases in computing power and most law still holding, we can also expect there to be an extreme decrease in cost. You also have it in genetics where you have the human genome project that in 2003 spends like $3 billion to decode the first human genome. And now you can do it for couple of hundred bucks. So I think that there might be hope that just this research will become cheaper by using computational techniques because computation is still relatively cheap compared to hundreds of PhDs or people in the wet labs just grinding for years and years to, to find these medications. Right. No, I'm 100% by you. I mean, that's that's exactly what we are committing at Celeris because the biggest field that causes expense in terms of money and time is the initial that we are abstracting away in silico. And when you look at the pharma companies, I mean, they are also trying to extract the profit. And you can see very clearly that they are struggling. So the cost... The cost of, of finding these drugs is is actually come up, so it's very hard for them to justify this. And if we are able to reduce the number of years and to reduce the number of money, then they can also reduce the number of drugs, and they don't need to justify the million for some expensive therapy. So it's it's one I would say collaborative effort to reduce this and then democratize it to a wider, a wider population. That's. That's regarding that. And also an, another thing that you mentioned, and I, I just cannot cannot fail to mention it. Um, you said, you know, the, the human genome project and the um, what's happening in, with the artificial intelligence, machine learning, computational resources, quantum computing. I think this all sums up to, and it was greatly summarized in the Sergey Young's uh, latest book that we are approaching. I think the, the, the actual term or, or the idea it was much older than that, but we are approaching a singularity point 
in terms of um, in terms of therapeutic solutions. When they, I think he calls it longevity escapes velocity, where basically the the advances and the innovation in prolonging our lifespan in a year will be much bigger than uh, than years subsequently to come. So meaning, if you ling- live long enough to this time point called longevity escape velocity, for every year that you live, um, you can escape the death because of the technology advance- advancements that were achieved in these years. And I think it's a powerful idea that we are striving for um, so uh, instead of this singularity from the computer science point of view, the singularity from the longevity point of view or for the therapeutics point of view, where we are basically trying for, from different angles, from uh, computational, um, AI, <clears throat> biology, medicine, technology, etc. So from different angles, we are converging together towards this point and leveraging different technologies, for example, protein degradation, geometric deep learning, active learning, etc. we are converging to a point where we are enabling us as a species to basically prolong our lives uh, more than we previously thought possible. Yeah, I think what's important to mention in this context is also this whole paradigm shifts that, that public figures like David Sinclair are proposing that we should really think of aging as like the, the core illness of, of them all. And there's this interesting definition, I think, that something can't count as an illness if more than 50% of all people are affected by it. And given everyone is aging, so 100% are affected by this illness, it, it can't be called an illness, but this leads us to to a pretty terrible um we, we don't see the trees for the forest because we, we don't see the aging for, for all the small diseases we, we identify. But pretty much all of the diseases that we face as, as mankind are related to aging in some way because the risk for pretty much every illness goes up once, um, once we are 50 or 80 or definitely 120 because no one made it past 120 ever. But this is only because we are aging and there seem to be some underlying reasons for why we age and it also doesn't seem to be necessary to to age specifically because we start out with the genome and based on the genome it's possible to build a very healthy human being usually and everyone in their 20 or most people in their 20 are generally much more healthy than people in their 80s so there seems to be something going on that we can get to you wrote an article recently about how we can actually like get to different mechanisms that underlie aging and that people are starting to identify actually cause aging and how big data and these machine learning methods can actually help us get a grip on that and maybe reverse some of these processes or find therapeutics in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So um, there's a, this great quote, I never saw a 20-year-old with Alzheimer's. I think if we frame it exactly as you said it now, as a disease, the, a lot of the subsequent or things or processes that we call as disease are going to go away. Because if you have a, you you can you can have a chronologically old person, but not biologically, right? So if you can have a chronolog- chronologically old individual, but biologically he's healthy, and you know that 
with healthy young persons, 20-year-olds don't get these terminal diseases, you have already alle- alleviated a lot of the problems. Um, that's that's the that's the short remark on that. And yeah, and uh, I mean, of course, we sellers couldn't resist uh, being a machine learning company to, uh, you know, encompass and try to tackle these problems outlined in multiple books and multiple uh, research papers uh, in terms of AI and how, what's what's the data and how can you um, basically target this computationally. Uh, I mean, the gist of it, uh, I would maybe recommend these two books. Um, uh, there is the uh, the science and technology of growing young by Sergey Sergey Young. I already mentioned that one, and the computational uh, uh, that computationally how to tackle the longevity. I extracted the, the points ma- mostly from the future is the faster than you by Peter Diamantes and Stephen Kotler, and what they basically outline and these are not new ideas. I mean, these are converging uh, disciplines from from. Uh, from a number of, of sites, is they outline 10, approximately 10, um, let's say, longevity-killing uh, processes that we can potentially tackle. Some of them, I think, are even common and known in wider audience, for example, like um, stem cell research, right? Uh, or I think everybody has heard also the telomere, telomere uh, attrition, the that the, at the heart of the cell, the DNA is basically packed into thread-like structures called chromosomes, and these chromosomes are capped by telomeres at the end, which act as barriers. And the basic premise between the telomere theory is that the shorter the telomere, uh, or the shorter the telomere at the critical level, critical level, the cell stops dividing, and then we become more prone to diseases and death. So that's the basic telomere attrition theory, right? I think this is, there have been actually a super famous books and I'm sticking to this specific topic because it's somewhat uh, uh, famous. And what, what we try to say is that, okay, great. This is the theory. This is from a technological point of view. I mean, the biotechnological point of view. Then the next question becomes, what parts of this process can we aid with machine learning? Okay, you have interdisciplinary talks with your scientists and they outline the main problems and aches that, that are needed in order to solve the problem or you know, uh, tackle the problem of telomere attrition in longevity. Okay, when, once you have identified that, then you think about in terms of data. And again, surprisingly for me, I, I think I already said that before, just the abundance of data in this wide, let's say, medical space is breathtaking i mean there's so much data that you you even don't know how to analyze it what what to think about it so what i'm trying to say is that okay you have this huge sources of data that that you can extract try to make intelligent decisions about and then at the end of the day think about can i model this with machine learning right and i think there are multiple approaches that one one can take in this regard um, I said telomere attrition, but then there's the genomic instability, epigenetic alterations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I know maybe some of your uh, listeners are now thinking, okay, what can I do with this? Uh, this is too much complexity. What What's great, uh, and I really enjoy these kinds of events. There, there's there's these so-called longevity hackathons. So the next one is organized by one of our investors, the R42 groups, where basically you get mentors. 
professors, seasoned professionals in this space that can mentor the participants in what makes more sense to tackle, right? And then you have disciplines like bioinformatics, machine learning, or tracks, to put it, where you they give you the data, they give you the guidelines, and then you have 40, 48 hours to hack and uh, try to come up with, uh, let's say, an MVP or a, some some initial um, statement about what's happening there. So that's that's what I'm super interested about because I think you know for a hammer everything looks like a nail and uh, any problem, even the longevity ones, biological ones, you're trying to tackle from from uh, from the data point of view. And uh, I think there's a lot going on in this space right now. Yeah, it's. A lot of people mention in the context of, of medicine that I think AI will is it seems very clear that AI will transform medicine in several different ways. There's also this whole field of genomics now that we cut the cost of decoding a genome by a factor of one million, I think, or ten million, <laughs> definitely by a huge factor. That means that we can gather a lot of genomic information or we can decode the, the genes of a lot of people and then we can combine this or do multimodal data integration based on this dna data and combine it with health data health data with certain risk factors for illnesses and this alone already gives us can potentially give us a an extremely powerful recommender system that can be nicely linked to to some kind of interface that makes very concrete recommendations what to do in our lives. So you mentioned there's all this complexity in, in, in the life, in the longevity context, there's a lot of uncertainty, but I think it, in some cases, it doesn't seem to be too tricky to actually move from this big database to a very concretely personalized recommendations about how to how should we live our life, what best to do and what best to tackle to increase our longevity, for example. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And uh, and and uh, this this is actually move uh, from the point of research to real companies offering these services. So you can Google it, and I have done this on my own. So you have the companies like Twenty Three and Me and etc. that do your g- genome sequ- sequencing, but then you have platforms that that just say, okay, load this up, let us perform the diagnosis, let us do the. Uh, recommending of, of what's happening based on your uh, genome sequence and then we will give you a potential guidance and, and guidelines what you should do in nutrition in i don't know um in in sport activities in any as any aspect of your life they can already give you some uh, guidelines i think this is more reality than than not um yeah yeah very true you can basically already do this but i think given that more people are going to do it then we can can see an increase of, of the predictive power of these models and then it becomes like an avalanche of, of usefulness. But again, I guess it's it's too obvious to to even mention that in this context data concerns become very poignant when you when you're starting to analyze genomes, basically hold a lot of power over certain people because you can predict things that are of interest to potentially bad actors or like a very cliche example is the health insurance company that given the genome of a person can quickly decide will that person probably cost me a million bucks or is it going to be a very healthy individual that then doesn't cause a lot of trouble and financial burden for the company. So, you know, how, how, how much you think about these ethical issues, but 
do you think there's a good way of, of balancing like these advances in big data and, and still ensuring ways to try to keep the data in the hands of the individuals? Right. Um, I think this is something that can definitely not be allowed um, to remain neglected. Um, I think in European space, we have a lot of guidelines and re regulative bodies that are already thinking about this and implementing uh, the potential lobbying for the laws and implementing the guidelines, etc. What, what needs to be done. And I'm 100% there with you. Um, uh, certain individuals need, I mean, individuals and um, the bro broader community in a whole need to be protected against this. And uh, as you mentioned, the, the example of insurances and what, what they can basically leverage to not insure you, I think this is not fair. And this does not uphold to the values um, that that we preserve. So I think this, this is definitely an important uh, aspect of it. Um, what I'm very... So this is the regulatory part. And I do believe that governments definitely need to regulate this and it needs to be a serious discussion of what's happening here and how how are we not only using the data, but also preserving the privacy. Uh, what I'm very interested is also from the technical point of view, and we can go, go into this. There are multiple disciplines that try to uh, alleviate these problems, you know, from the, let's say, computer science perspective. So... For example, one field that I really like is called uh, differential privacy, where um, basically, and this this is something that majority of the algorithms, for example, uh, when you use some service that that access your personal data with Google or or uh, Apple, majority of these services use the differential privacy algorithms. And the basic premise behind the algorithm is that you can mathematically prove that uh, injecting certain level of noise to the algorithm can anonymize it but still allow it to extract the patterns needed to learn right and i think you know if we were to converge from both of these sides from regulatory only to a certain degrees because we we don't want the the bureaucracy to kill the innovation and then from the other point of view of technology where we really make sure that you know the ethical and the initial guiding principles of, of privacy and what do we do with this data are actually protected. If we converge from the technical and from the regulatory, I think we can ensure that the innovation is not limited, but the also at the time, no rights uh, have been endangered. Yeah, that's a very interesting aspect. I'm also involved in a somewhat similar project in the context of psychiatry, where it's about yeah, using more and more data and implementing incorporating smartphones in the, in the context of making predictions in a psychiatric context. And of course, in that context, especially it's, it's ex extremely sensitive data because people, there's still a certain stigma around mental health and people usually don't want data about their um, happiness and uh, biological markers leaked into the web and, and people seeing them being depressed, for example, these kind of things. So it, it's extremely sensitive, but at the same time, so we need to pay a lot of attention to, to ensure the privacy of this data. And this, of course, also limits what data can you collect and what in the end, how much flexibility do you have when implementing algorithms and making predictions? And you basically have to forcibly limit yourself. And this also decreases the performance and then it makes it harder for you to, to compete 
with companies that maybe don't pay as much attention to the privacy of their users. So it's a very fascinating space to explore and using technological solutions to actually intro, like get the best of both worlds to anonymize efficiently for the human reader, but at the same time make it still possible to, to use the data to train models and then get the best possible model. That's actually very interesting. I hadn't heard about differential privacy yet. Yeah, I think it's a little bit, uh, it's, a little, it's definitely not that unresearched. So I know there are a couple of, um, I'm not sure if it's some Stanford laboratory or Harvard laboratory, but there's definitely some em eminent institutions that are actively researching on this. I, I would agree that it's not mainstream, but I mean, I just named an example that I really like and that I've used. Um, but there are other approaches from technological point of view that are trying to tackle this, you know, without uh, without too much bureaucracy and, and introducing rules. But I believe the both sides, both worlds are, are very important and they need to be married. Do you have other examples right now for how this could work? Yeah, so, I mean, um, so, for example, what, um, because in my previous life, the, the, the reason why I mentioned the differential privacy is that in my previous life, uh, I was working with financial institutions, and they are uh, super, um, yeah, they are super careful with their data, right? They don't want to... Um, um, they don't want to. They want to make sure that the, the data doesn't leak and that the privacy is um, um, uh, saved and nothing nothing has happened with their customer data. Um, that, that, that's one of the approaches, and that's why I mentioned it. the other approach that I like very much is the um, on-device computing. So this paradigm where you don't. So let's say you have a phone and you have some service, and it needs your personal data to make the predictions, instead of sending the data to a central server to make these predictions, the model can be basically serialized in a smaller format, sent to you, make the inference, because as we know, our computer, our mobile phones now are more powerful than the, than the computer that sent the man to the moon. So we have a lot of computing power locally. I don't think we even realize that. And we can definitely make some uh, some inferences locally on our computers, potentially not train, but make inferences. So on, on, on device computing, on edge computing is, I think, very, very useful because with that, what you ensure is that the data never leaves your backyard. So you're always in control of it. You just use your data with the model that the company sent you to make the predictions that you need done yeah and then you use basically anonymous data in the best case to to train the model and then your data actually doesn't leave your own hands or your own device and you're basically responsible yourself exactly. for the security risks involved in that exactly i mean anonymized or um bought off or donated data. I think there's also this concept of data wallet where basically you can uh, get money from the companies by using your data. And if somebody wants to earn additional money with that, they can donate the data. They don't think their data is interesting enough or that they endangers their privacy. Basically, you can learn on this data for every individual that doesn't deem um, protection necessary. Yeah, we'll probably soon also have a podcast episode where it's, it's more of 
the philosophical aspects of data ownership and it also touches the area of like, how do you actually own your data or who owns your data and can you sell it on the market and can the market actually regulate efficiently what happens with data and yeah, are you not entitled as, <laughs> as an individual and in living in these societies to do what what you think is best with your data and then considering in this day and age data is probably the, the most valuable commodity like the oil of the 21st century then you don't you have the right to sell it freely um i mean at the end of the day it comes back to the fact if, if the service requires no subscri subscription or the payment you are the service um so you know you pay at the end of the day either with money or the data but yeah i agree with your statement and it seems like we already kind of do in facebook for example but we are made to believe as a user that it's not we're not paying with our data but We're actually the customers, but the customers are usually the ad companies that put up advertisements to influence our decisions. And that's how all these companies earn their money. And it's not about creating a social network for, for the enjoyment of the customer, basically. So I think if you, if you just pull that out into the open and make it more transparent, what it's actually about, then it is also more like entitling for the individual to, to make these decisions. No, definitely. Um, I think there should be an opt-out clause. Yeah, in the context of medicine, there's also, we already covered a couple of things, aging, for example, but there's also a lot of different areas that you can think of where these, um, yeah, just big data comes in very handy. So we previously talked about these fitness bands and liquid biospies, for example, and yeah, also using... What would you, I think, mentioned as the Internet of Bodies to, to personalize and data drive, make medicine more data driven? I think it comes back to the to the fact that you stated a couple of seconds ago is that data is the oil, but more importantly, he who owns the data owns the AI. So it's not about the algorithms. If you have the if you have great data cleaned up, labeled, you can apply linear regression to it and get what you need. Right? It's all about The data, and if you can manage that process, you, you can man manage everything else. And what does this sums up to? If you were to talk about the variables and uh, you know connecting the different um, devices that measure biomarkers biomarker on our body, I, I think this is a super interest, interesting space that's now even starting to converge uh, more rapidly. So I, I, I read upon a couple of. Um, research papers where they were basically allowed or, or they managed to non-invasively measure bodily fluids up to 15 millimeters uh, or nanometers i'm not sure but basically up to uh, up to a certain depth right so non-invasively and now you might be thinking okay wh wh why does this matter you know uh, what can you do with it but there's this whole field of liquid biopsy where Even with a one drop of blood or sweat or whatever bodily fluid, you are able to make really important predictions and inference. And I mean, with that, at the end of the day, diagnostics, right? So th there are actually cancers that you can predict just with one drop of blood. Um, if that's not the use case enough in its own, I, I don't know. Because if you can imagine, you, you have this device that 
that can measure your bodily fluids without you even noticing. I mean, it's not invasive. And at the end of the day, with, with this and the automated software running on top of it and checking your state on a daily basis, you don't need a doctor. Your doctor is your machine. I mean, doctor is there really... I mean, we are talking about general doctors, right? Super specialized ones are always going to be very important. But like general physician, uh, the chances are you're going to trust your machine more than him. Um, He's biased, right? And converging to this, you know, having multiple devices connected not only to your body measuring different things, but also... Uh, them being interconnected to other devices in your neighborhood, in your city, in your in, in the population, you know, you get this huge uh, interconnected network of Internet of Bodies that are able to basically exchange information and learn, learn based on uh, different individuals and their daily measurements. So I think, you know, from just and even this is covered in the in the book that I said from Sergey Young, and, and he's right when he says this is not some uh, you know 50, 50 years down the line reality. We are converging very fast towards this, and in ten to twenty years, I think the way we speak about Internet of Things today, the the the, the same will be for Internet of Bodies. Yeah, and we also previously discussed this very fascinating point that I think most people don't realize. That might also connects to to some of the issues around climate change and these like long term perspectives of mankind. That like even predicting now our average like for people in their twenties, thirties right now, their average life expectancy is around one hundred years or upwards in the, in the Western world, especially. And this is not factoring in all the potential developments in the aging and longevity sector that seem by now very very palpable and very very much realistic so as, as david sinclair also mentions lifespans of 130 150 years could be very reasonable so i think that also really changes how we should think about how to live our lives and like discussing this in, in germany there's still the the debate going on if, if we have a retirement age at 65 or 67 or 63 i think most of these people are completely missing the point that it will be about like 78 or 105 or something like in the next 20 years, it, it's really going to be or like maybe not 20 years, but let's say even 30, 40 years, medicine will t- transform to such an impressive and degree that we will probably look back at the way we do medicine right now. So walking in into a room full of sick people and having to wait for two hours to get a diagnosis by a person that has no data about you and just here's you listing the symptoms for, for 20 seconds and then just prescribes a random track that was probably found by accident. So I think there's so many parts in there, in the way we do medicine that is more medieval than than modern in, in any kind of way. And I think data is probably the way out of this set of affairs. No, I definitely, I definitely agree with you. Um, and uh, I mean, it's it's um, that there are a couple of there are a couple of things that are very important in that aspect. Uh, I believe um, you know we currently are rather proactive, or and instead of we are just preventing whatever is happening, but we are not actively involved from the gecko uh, regarding different diseases or problems that happen in our body. I think the statistic is 
and I might be off here, but I know it's the, the fact is it's overwhelming majority of the deaths in the world are caused by not early enough diagnostics of diseases. So it's like crazy statistic. I don't know. It's, it's either two thirds or three fourths or whatever, but it's if we were only able to do it early enough, you're good. And now imagine a device that can do this on a second basis, not on a two-year basis when you go on your checkup. Uh, I mean, just the potential in this small, small aspect of diagnostics is crazy, right? I think this, 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 this will only be clear to us when we enter, enter a state where, you know, you're 65 and you expect, you know, uh, it's coming to an end, but then you realize with, with everything that we've done, it's not only the, the chronological age doesn't matter anymore. Like biologically, you're forty, and then I think we enter uh, we enter a completely other set of problems that you are actually researching. Is that uh, you know what do I do? What's the meaning? Uh, well, you know, if you are capable of living your life until. 90 or 100 same as you you were capable you were 50 you know the 80 is the new 50 or whatever um i think this opens up a, a whole another pandora's box that uh, that we also have to solve yeah very true yeah a couple of minutes ago you also mentioned a very interesting point the the, the fact that when you have very clean data linear regression is also might even be sufficient and in one of your talks, you, you called machine learning glorified statistics. And I also agree with you on that point that it's, I think a lot of the aspects of what machine learning actually is and what it does uh, seem very overrated to to mathematically inclined person. But at the same time, the fact that they work so well is, is interesting in its own right, because it means that you can, with very simple statistics, given good and, and sufficient data, you can already do pretty impressive statistics and, and beat human experts by, by a good margin. So maybe we can move a bit deeper into the different kinds of machine learning, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning, and also move to, to some of the applications that you mentioned in, in the context of your master thesis and in the financial sector, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would definitely say, just to linger for a point on that point uh, that you said, you know, glorified um, statistics. I think people are mistaking simpler data analysis to to writing software that leverages machine learning. There is a difference between you writing a paper on some socioeconomic data and calling it the AI revolution, and there's a completely different space of somebody writing this huge. I don't know, recommend a system or whatever sophisticated, or let's let's call it like this. There is a huge difference between AlphaGo and you writing some socioeconomics data. Like the, the, the complexity and the skill involved is not even comparable. You probably, I mean, you, I'm, I'm, I'm talking abstractly. This person probably used some uh, logistic regression or I don't know, whatever transformations. And the AlphaGo project is primarily a software engineering project. Because anything of that complexity, it needs standardized software development practices. And then you're going to integrate machine learning, and then we might talk about MLOps, et cetera, et cetera. But primarily, 
when you're talking about such huge complexity, you're talking about software development. And then you can say, okay, this is cool, you know, but now I have these super abstracted libraries, like, I don't know, like um, um, from from OpenAI, the gym, the AI gym library, or I don't know, fast AI that, you know, has this fit and predict, but also that's software, you know, that's been explicitly written to generalize to most of the, I don't know, uh, image classification problems that you can use easily, or the open AI gym environments for reinforcement learning. And at the end of the day, that is software. That is what it solves. And for specific applications that are really helping the, the humanity and at the end of the day are profitable, they need to be customized in the same way that the AlphaGo or the OpenAI or the FastAI were written. So they need to go start from the low level be written very, you know, in, in low-level um, languages, or it doesn't have to even be that. It can be in Python, but you need to start from the low-level principles and then abstract it away from that. The, what I'm trying to get at is that the low-hanging low hanging fruits of applying um, linear regression on whatever data, that doesn't bring any value. Yeah. So you mean the... the techniques that you are using can be quite simple, but the, the big challenge of machine learning is to build functioning software on, on these different layers and integrating it everything into one larger framework. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Because at the end of the day, what we are doing with machine learning and AI is nothing new. We are automating processes for humanity, point. And I mean, uh, the way we were automating it was with software, writing code. Now we are automating it with data, models, and code, but code primarily, right? And um, as the bigger the software or the bigger the project that you are trying to automate, uh, the, the software engineering guidelines need to be stricter and you need to adhere to this, right? Because... Uh, Chances are it's not going to be some scikit-learn fit and predict. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting to to think of yeah, the fact that pretty much like the, the basic methodologies that are used in machine learning and deep learning had already been around. But if you just do simple fitting, we could already do that 30, 20 years ago. But now we have much more data, we have stronger computing power, and we have the ability to integrate these into larger frameworks and this is basically what gives us the, the necessary power and not not really huge new conceptual developments i mean you have for example cnns that are now extremely useful but in principle they are also not like an insane new idea but just a way of rearranging neural networks to to make them leverage certain like recurring structures within data but in principle it's it's also not something completely crazy and going way beyond the, the simple techniques. That's true. That's true. I completely agree with you. And this would be the truth for, I would say, 99% of AI machine learning. I think what's really, you know, breaking the grounds and being the novelty is the these strides towards the AGI, the artificial general intelligence. I think this is what we have been promised. We have been promised walking robots, but we got uh, Amazon recommender systems, right? Um, and I guess strides towards this 
is what's really the forefront of interesting researches, at least in my humble opinion. Um, and I guess the major part of this is the reinforcement learning. And again, this is, um, we can talk about the novelty and what's happening there, but again, this is also super, let's say, super old. If, if we talk about the, the basics of reinforcement learning, we are talking about stochastic optimization. That's a discipline of mathematics that has been here for decades. Bellman equation. Uh, dynamic programming. That these are all the ground principles of reinforcement learning, and this has been studied for decades and decades. Right, the uh, the Burton and Sutton uh, book reinforcement learning. That's like uh, the I, I think the really the starting point of of this. The first version was in the nineties, I believe. Right, so this this is old. What's interesting with the convergence of computing power and the research that and the money that has flown in. We are now able to solve really interesting problems. AlphaGo, for example, right? Uh, different bots for playing video games. Um, I think there's also this cool YouTube channel calls, called Papers with Code. I'm not sure, but basically he summarizes the different reinforcement learning applications in this cool interactive videos, but where he basically showcases what the agents can learn and how they can interact. And one can begin to extrapolate that we are moving towards artificial general intelligence with that, right? With, with some agent or being or whatever that's that's able to um, be super, super intelligent. Uh, and this has been actually proven. I think a couple of weeks or months ago, there has been a DeepMind paper uh, called Reward is Enough, alluding to the reinforcement learning, to learn the artificial, artificial general intelligence. And, you know, when some experts or authorities in the field confirm this, I think we are moving towards interesting directions. But as I said, I think this is a, you know, a corner of AI uh, that's still to find its commercial value. There are already commercial value, but not as extensive as, as other things. And from the research point of view, I think this is where we are going to make the more, more, most strides uh, to a better future yeah there also seems to be this inside joke in the ai field that you have these papers with a fancy title something something is all you need yet attention is all you need that was one of the the groundbreaking transformer papers and recently also saw the hopfield networks are all you need that explained how rnns and lstms are also only like special versions of hopfield networks so it, it seems to be this trend to to try to reduce the the especially in the AI field, because you have so many people working on it, then you have so many fine-tuned architectures and so many like very minor developments, and then people are trying to break it down again to, to the simple basic principles. So I, I haven't seen the reward is all you need paper yet. Do, do, you, do you know what the, the general message is? Um, but reward is only <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> no. Um, and but what what they are basically arguing for very structurally is that if you maximize the reward enough, you can drive the behavior that will exhibit most of the attributes of intelligence in the scope of how we define the intelligence, knowledge, learning, etc. Right. So basically very formally is that if you have an objective and you formalize the reward in the scope of defined uh, intelligence and uh, knowledge, learning, perception, uh, this will be enough to learn this. Right? Um, 
yeah, that's that's the basic or, or the basic idea. So uh, I haven't gone too deep in the paper, um, but yeah, that's that's what's what's uh, what's it all about. Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a very very interesting field, and uh, maybe to touch back on on the on the drug discovery, this has also been done. I mean, applying the reinforcement learning into drug discovery, it's it's been also done in in this field, and why. I mean, if we think about it, and I said, what is reinforcement learning? It's basically making stochastic decision. You have this huge space where you need to make the best possible decision given a lot of constraints, right? Very high level set. And I mean, what happens in in drug discovery? You, You have this huge space of possible decisions, meaning molecules, and you need to bind them together given some constraints, right? And this has been applied and it's been uh, part of the research and it's it's a valid approach because you're modeling based on the same absu- assumptions of stochasticity etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah it's it's interesting we have not done that yet at Celeris there are there are serious considerations applying it to certain processes um, but yeah we'll see what comes out of that so we asking for your personal opinion it's it's a very general and difficult question, but what does intelligence mean to you? And when do you think we can expect something like AGI to be around? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think now we are striving into a little bit philosophical point of view and very subjective, right? I mean, it's it's kind of those things... With beauty, what what does beauty mean? What what does it mean to you? It's it's all about your personal interpretation. Um, what I would be, and I'm already, I feel like I'm already into that era. Looking at what, for example, happened happened with AlphaGo, so defining intelligence in this narrow field of making intractable decisions with the white and black figures right so you cannot fit all the possible combinations in memory and the machine the agent learned the optimal decision without calculating all the possibilities me personally in some sense again this is subjective and and philosophical and maybe not considering all the possible assumptions but for me this is intelligent right um, I think there has been a lot of philosophical works and uh, trying to basically marry this with the computer science and the and the re- real research be- be- behind the mathematical foundations of this. But at the end of the day, it will all depend on how we humans define it. And for me, it suffices. Yeah. So we already have taken some quite impressive steps to find really intelligent systems and as David Silver from the AlphaGo team also says, this reinforcement learning seems to be pretty close to the heart of what we feel intelligence means. And if we are also observe something like creativity and, and beauty in, in the actions of a machine, then it's clearly starting to smudge the boundaries between what we think of as our, or that makes human intelligence so special and what the machines are able to do. You said it beautifully. We smudged the boundaries. And I mean, I guess all of your listeners saw probably the AlphaGo movie and the documentary. And right at the beginning, 
as uh, the founder of DeepMind is presenting at this lecture hall, he's presenting what the agent learned to play that. It's not Tetris, but what's that bouncing ball game? I don't yeah, know yeah, if like you know what I'm referring yeah. to. Exactly. Something. You crash some boxes. And what he said at the end is that we let it play and learn long enough. And what it learned is a tactic that even we experienced players didn't know. Right? So it optimized to a point of creativity that humans didn't even know existed. So, I mean, implicating exactly what you said, it smudges on the boundaries of creativity, intelligence, whatever you define it. Yeah. And it was quite remarkable. Um, the, I think, yeah, the documentary is beautiful. I can also do some small advertising for, for the podcast with Tor Grepe if, if people haven't listened to it. But we also talk about AlphaGo in, in a lot of detail and about their experience in the team of like how surprised at, at some points they were at like what, what was going on. And now I, I say beautifully illustrate in the documentary where you have these different moves one beautiful famous move by by AlphaGo that was where all the masters considered it to be extremely beautiful and novel and innovative and then you also have the human being that does this beautiful move so basically you have this yeah humans and machines going hand in hand and both of them contributing something that we find aesthetically pleasing and meaningful so it's starting to kind of move into into each other and the boundaries are colliding. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, talking about reinforcement learning a little bit, you looked at stock trading and I think this is just also a very interesting topic that maybe we, we don't have too much time to get into full depth anymore, but can you illustrate a little bit what you did there and how in the, in the financial market you can also employ these kind of techniques Sure. So um, there is a preface that I have to say. I think what I like about this topic is that it has been spoiled and destroyed by media and different tutorials of like, oh, here are the super cool bots that are able to make the super sophisticated decisions. And they are lies. Um, what I am sure about and there are different accounts of this, is, is that these high-end quantitative hedge funds, like um, um, what's the name of that Simmons math- mathematician? Uh, it's not OneGuard. I forget the name of the hedge fund, but basically these high-end ha- quantitative hedge funds, they have guys uh, that are not smart, but borderline geniuses. Uh, I remember one funny story because I was attending this conference of um, a London hedge fund where it's called Two Sigma. And basically I was talking to this guy and he was like, yeah, one of the leading developers, the quant. Yeah, he was working with uh, with Terence Tao. That's the, I think, the most famous mathematician today. And, you know, uh, I don't know, he finished the problems better or quicker than Terence Tao. It was like some of those funny remarks, but... And, and then he recommended some books to me regarding that. And the, the basic pre- preface of it was, you know, if these hedge funds were able to publish the research that they've done, they would, with 100% probability, win a couple of Nobel Prizes. The sad reality is we are incentivized by money and a lot of smart people are working their hands 
I mean, of, of, of course, this technology is proprietary and they cannot publish it. So do the quantitative hedge funds have this technology and have the employ this successfully? 100%. There's no question about it. Does this information is available out there uh, on online on some GitHub or whatever with some really functioning bot? Of course not. Because if it, if it was functioning, A, it have been already used. B, the statistical arbitrage, meaning the potential to extract some value from the difference in prices, would have already been closed because he would extract that with his with his own trades. So that's that's the basic preface. But what I like about and that that comes back to the fact of automating a process instead of trying to build something end to end, meaning give the agent the money and let him do whatever, and then you come two months later and you are on a beach sipping margaritas instead of thinking it like that what what it really is it's about automating a certain aspect of making decisions right and what, what i try to build with that one is um just let's call it personal secretary where instead of parsing different sources of information nlp information graphs qu quantitative information about some options so not stocks, but options. I mean, with that also stocks, because that's the underlying um, instrument of the options. Without, uh, So no need to parse it on my own. I would have an agent that would basically um, summarize and um, search for all this different information, uh, aggregate it, and make potential recommendations that I, as a human, can then uh, try to deduce and analyze on my own so instead of you spending hundreds of hours on wall street bets and trying to make some smart decision you can let the computer aggregate this make you top 10 suggestions and then you validate this on your own and here's a catch that's exactly what we do at Celeris. so we make the machine learning propose the ternary complexes the molecules then we go to the lab and we synthesize that. We validate this. But what has happened? Instead of trying hundreds of thousands of combinations, we only have 10. That's the basic proposition. And that's basically what, what, what happened there. Um, and I mean, depending on your own philosophy, do you, do you believe in market efficiency? Can you even extract information from uh, text, etc., etc.? That's a whole, a whole other uh, story. But long story short, the, the, the financial space is so complex that abstracting it away with one end-to-end -end pipeline is near impossible. Yeah, and it, it seems over-ambitious for a lot of people to, to think that you can just train an LSTM based on, on past stock market information and then just do a time series prediction and then you will get rich because you know how the market is going to develop. I think these are very naive assumptions a lot of people have about like whether where information is actually lying and probably in the financial sector you can argue that all the relevant information is probably not um, contained in the signal or much of the relevant information you need to actually get a, a margin because you need basically an information advantage in order to to make profits exactly yeah I found that quite interesting because you said that the AI is, is making predictions and then you cut down the, the tree of, of possible things you, you can suggest or in the context. It reminded me of, of the context of chess where you also do this tree search and then you make propositions for moves. And 
after Gary Kasparov was beaten by Deep Blue, you still had this period of, say, 10, 15 years where like a hybrid between machine and human being was actually best, where the machine analyzed positions and then made recommendations for moves, but but the humans could still interact within the process and, and select certain actions. So maybe this is always the, like the intermediate stage of we, we start with, um, yeah, in, in certain areas where we use computers to enhance our abilities and make it easier for us to, to see through lots of options, but still the human in the loop can, can be very helpful in, in guiding like relevant decisions then. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I see it. And I think, uh, you know, may, maybe certain areas we can be hopeful. I don't know. Let's touch upon autonomous driving. Uh, maybe there we can be hopeful that maybe end-to-end solution will be available in the next f- five to 10 years. But realistically, most of the processes won't be. But what will be a reality is augmented artificial intelligence. As you said, there's a lot of that's abstracted away with machine learning, but then the human at the end of the day will make the decision. Yeah. I think it's time to to move on to some some meta questions that still relate to a lot of the things we've already talked about. I was going to ask you about your favorite or most helpful books. You already gave two interesting book recommendations, but if you, if you step back to not only what you read recently, are there any like books that really influenced your thinking or just yeah, changed your mind? Yeah, I think there's. Def- I think I'm going to suffer from recency bias yeah. most definitely, um, and hence the recommendation for the longevity ones because that's that's what I was immersing myself in the uh, in previous time. Um, and also, it depends on the discipline. So if we were to talk about, I don't know, uh, innovation or, or companies or whatever, I, I, I really I really like the zero to one from Peter Thiel. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading that right um, now. It's funny coincidence. Yeah. Really? I think it's yeah. top three, to be honest, in my like reading list. The reason why I love it and what, what, I always extract like one sentence. If it's not hundred times better. I think it's like important philosophy for at least for me and I think for a lot of people because we live in this, um, I would say, porn-enabled entrepreneurship world where it's so fantasized about. And I think if you're not able to produce something that's at least hundred times, I mean, he talks about 10 times, but in a lot of dimensions better than the current ones, then don't bother. Competition is going to kill you. If this is not the case, then you know it's better not to do it. I mean, obviously there are a lot more caveats and discussions in the book, but I generally like this idea. Yeah, I found that extremely mind-changing. Like this whole perspective that basically markets that already offer a lot of comp- uh, competition basically will kill your company, and that you should always try for monopoly in some kind of way by making a product that is so much better than every competition that it's basically impossible for them to catch up. And this will guarantee you that you can actually properly innovate and then focus on the right things and on long-term prospects. Exactly. And that's why I think, uh, the, I mean, maybe it's a bit controversial statement. I think the scientists and the research are the most important people uh, in, on our planet because they are the ones who enable creation of new markets, striving forward of innovation, etc. If we were all 
working in hedge funds and trying to get the next statistical arbitrage or building the next next Facebook, then uh, we are not going to live to 150. <laughs> yeah. Right? I, I agree. As a scientist, I, I definitely agree that we are the most important people. Yeah. And that's and that's me stating that as a non-scientist. Yeah, I think you are, what you do is is so similar to what I'm doing that we should consider everything to be science. I think also, yeah, this this claim of university to to be the only people that are scientists is also just not holding anymore because there's so much innovation in in the technical world and maybe also some of the more relevant innovation is in in companies because they actually have applications in mind. And yeah, I think you can happily marry the, like the it doesn't need to be this like dichotomy between like, doing research and or like gaining profits and doing something good because pharmaceuticals are obviously an area of, of application where you can both make money but also help a tremendous tremendous amount of people and get some new techniques and insights along the way yeah. exactly yes that's that's the main point yeah. Um, yeah, are there any other books? I think you were trying to mention. Um, okay, so yeah, so that's the longevity. Let me, okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit and open my Kindle. <laughs> yeah, that's always helpful. Uh, let me think. Oh, yeah, I have to, I have to mention my, my uh, how do you call it, the, the, the guy that with the same name, the Yuval yeah. Noah Harari. Um, I, I really like his books and his thoughts. Um, from Homo Deus to the other ones, I think he really makes good arguments, not about previous analysis, but also about the future and what's going to happen. Um, I, I, I really like what, what he was he was saying there. Um, what else was great? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, I think there's like the Lean Startup, the... The sprint uh, solve big problems and test new ideas in just five days. I think it's like more mostly about uh, companies, etc. Um, I know, but but you mentioned. I think this was also a great book that I enjoyed. I forget now the name. I, I read it a couple of days, uh, a couple of years ago, from uh, Amon Tversky. Yeah, and thinking fast and slow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a book. I really I really enjoyed that one. Um, Daniel Kinnaman. Yeah, yeah. I think you mentioned him anyways. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think this this would this would be. Yeah. Oh, the one. Oh, yeah. I have to mention this one. Okay. Yeah. This this is super important. Another author, I think, very warm recommendations, is called Cal Newport. I don't know how much are your readers familiar with him, but I mean the the, the basic uh, themes around him are digital minimalism and deep work. And I, they are intertwined, but uh, he's right that the biggest resource that we have now as knowledge workers, and we are all, I mean, 95% of us are knowledge workers, especially in Western societies. Um, biggest resource is our attention span and concentration. You cannot produce meaningful work by typing into Teams and emails every five minutes. And if you hone this skill, of concentrated deep work, you will be able to have edge. Um, I, I really like his reading. I, I really warmly recommend to read everything from him. But this deep work, so good they cannot ignore ignore you. Digital minimalism, uh, 
really, really good. I mean, he's a computer scientist and his arguments are really sane. That's what I like. Uh, you know, uh, spare me the philosophy, give me, you know, concrete, pragmatic arguments. And the great thing about deep work is that you can actually do just a one day experiment, just try it out for yourself. And it becomes so immediately obvious that it's just much more efficient. If you, if you have certain tasks where you need full focus and attention switching, it's just killing consistency and just killing everything that is would be interesting about your work and yeah, email and many other things, social media are kind of the enemies of sustained attention. And that's interesting neuroscientific books. There's also the distracted mind that I can recommend in this context, a book about basically the attention economy and like how attention works and is implemented in our brains and basically why this very useful mechanism is just being hijacked by a lot of things that make it very hard for us to just focus on any task for more than five minutes. But if, so I think Carl Newport's argument is that if we move from five minutes to one hour of product attention, it's not 12 times as productive, but it's basically 1000 times more productive. Or it's, it's, it's just, a, it induces some kind of phase shift between like not being productive at all and just having great ideas and being able to do more work than you thought was possible in lesser. Yeah. Basically, you allow yourself to enter the state of flow. And this is the differentiator because the, be, the, doing the, the, the knowledge work, in essence, it's creative work. You know, I mean, if it's valuable, it's creative. It's not copy pasting anything from Stack Overflow or reiterating some research paper. It needs to have novelty and novel ideas in it, so no, novel creativity. And the biggest state that we produce this creativity it is the state of flow. So allowing yourself to even enter this is the, the, the biggest differentiator. So I was going to ask you what your typical research day looks like, also from a perspective of like programming versus theoretical work but also now from the perspective maybe of how you implement things like deep work in, in your day. Right. So um, I'm going to be a little bit cheeky and say that my main job is making sure that all the other people can do the <laughs> yeah. deep work. Uh, uh, I mean, there's some truth to that in the sense that um, I cannot have the luxury of um, not responding to some messages or d direct questions about, you know, what are we building? What's the architecture? What's the code? What do we need to do? So I need to be available to the to the research guys, to the engineers, to, to the, or the other uh, departments. But obviously, if, if I were to do that 12 times, uh, 12 hours a day, then, uh, then we wouldn't move at all forward. So it's definitely time boxed. What I like to do is mornings first, at least far four to five hours are deep work. So no email, no work, Pomodoro technique, um, shutting everything off and everybody knows that's, that's how we basically uh, constructed our, our, our workflow is that the, the talking and the discussions are very briefly in, initially in the morning, but subsequently everything in, in afternoon. Um, so that's basically how we, how we uh, derive it. And what, what are the, the tasks, as actually as you said, it's the research. It's the most creative task. It's the task that require the most flow that are reserved for the morning because that's where you're most fit. Everything else is wishy washy. 
And I mean, there's also great research from this that essentially for different kinds of work, and if we're talking about flow and, and, and creative knowledge work, you may think that you're working 16 hours a day, but you are effectively working eight. Every other hour has marginal effects. So every hour after the eighth one is actually effectively like 15 minutes. Because at the end of the day, only thing that matters is output. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in front of a computer. If you're not producing output in the in the value of one hour of deep work, then just don't don't do that. Yeah, I think that's a crucial insight as well. That I think this deep work book really changed my mind on like this whole idea of, of a nine to five job. And then as long as you're doing something or pretend to do something in that time interval, then you're working. But this is just a, like a stupid simplification of what work is actually about because it's about output. And if you have four great hours of deep work without any distractions, then you can usually just pull off a full work day in that area of time. And you can also spend eight hours in front of your PC writing emails and just doodling around. And you basically have the output of literally just one 30-minute interval of deep work or not even that. So you really have this nonlinear scaling that becomes absolutely relevant when we think of like productivity and how we are actually spending our lives from a, on a daily basis. Exactly. No, I agree 100%. And that's that's what we try to enforce at Celeris. So we have no no, no uh, office policy. You can come. We, we have an office, but, you know, nobody's going to stand behind your monitor and ask you, you know, what did you do? Uh, you you need your deep work. We trust you. We we believe that that everything is going to be done, and we allow you to find your peace time on your own, and you know do the do the work that you need to do instead of us, you know, just monitoring and tracking. That's that's not the way of the future. Yeah, that sounds very smart to actually listen to the science and just reshape your company. And probably COVID also played its role in in changing these structures. It played its role, yes, yes, definitely. But but uh, you know we are we are um, we are not only uh, based in uh, in Austria. We also have, for example, office in in Silicon Valley. But we have work uh, people working from all over the globe. So it it was it was also the hiring decisions that didn't force you to even move to Austria if you didn't want to. And that opens up the a lot of potential applicants and. Yes, exactly. I mean, of course, there there are some uh, um, reasons that are a little bit uh, uh, personal and that that you want to leverage. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about making making uh, people that you work with happy. And if if they feel if monitoring them, that will definitely make them have not happy. They they need to have enough confidence and um, you know um, enough space to do the flow work that they need yeah. to do. Again, harking back to that argument of us being stuck in this mindset of early industrialization, having people in the factory and they're just producing 20 screws per hour and you have to monitor them to ensure that they produce these screws. But like the product, the output of a knowledge worker is so much more difficult to, to grasp and pro properly map onto hours worked that it you just need a completely different philosophy. I'm hoping a lot of people yeah. like companies and academia as well are starting to to take the science into account here. Yeah. No, I I agree 100%. Um yeah, it's it's 
I think it's definitely it's definitely way of the future, and um, um, I think one of the problems that I see, and this is maybe a little bit diver- diverging, is that people there is a, this syndrome of uh, how, how do they call it, not middle level management. So these are the kind of uh, people that are not really skilled or trained into that particular discipline. Uh, let's say they are they are only trained in. I'm going to name something stupid. I don't know. Let's say law, right? But they are working in computer science company and they are middle-level management. And the only way that they can make sure that the progress is made is is by this old-fashioned rules of monitoring, whatever. But if they really know the content and what's happening, then that's the monitoring in itself because a skilled professional knows the expected time that something is needed to finish. There's no need for him to sit there and... You know, maybe that this person doesn't want to work until noon or has some other obligations. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that the output is there, that it's finished on time, and that's it. Yeah. Another thing I was yeah, thinking about asking you is just because you have taught now a lot of data science and you have some experiences there, and do you have any ideas where good places to start are and what perhaps new researchers in the in the field should focus on like what kind of hard skills they should acquire um i would differentiate two disciplines uh data science machine learning research and data science machine learning applications meaning industry work if you want to work for industry the best thing to study is computer science And I didn't study it. Okay. Um, If we are talking about research, I think the best point to study is, and here maybe I'm going to be a little bit unfair, is something very closely related to mathematics. Computer science in itself is mathematics. I mean, when you get to it, right? I mean, theoretical computer science is nothing other than applied mathematical disciplines. And the research in this area, I mean, true research, where you are really uh, building some groundbreaking new techniques, it's all mathematical. I mean, let's take reinforcement learning. Every reinforcement learning is mathematical in its nature. Sure, you have some implementation, but you can learn that as, 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 as times move on. But you need to be able to proofread, to prove things, uh, to... Uh, Think from these first-level principles of mathematics, etc. So th- these two dif- dis- disciplines. If it's industry, go software. Th- it's definitely no mistake. If it's research, do-, do something very concentrated on mathematics, like technical physics or I don't know, whatever. Yeah, I think that connects nicely to the previous two podcast episodes with two mathematicians that now work in, in understanding machine learning from a theoretical perspective and also, of course, have some connections to the real applications but more in a, in a formal setting so it seems i'm also a theoretical physicist by training so i can definitely agree that to to, to research these like more like fundamental questions of, of how these models are constructed and work then it's very useful to to come to approach them from this mindset but i also very much realized that i didn't study computer science so a lot of the skills necessary to move in that direction have to be learned along the way to how to build proper software and write code and these kind of things. So I think if you're straight exactly. into the applications and that software engineering perspective can be extremely helpful. And we in our group notice that because everyone is a theoretical physicist or 
like something similar and a mathematician that we are kind of lacking that skill set as a group as a whole because sometimes you just have like different ways of thinking about it and could really profit from some synergy effects here Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think uh, you touched upon a very important point. Uh, I, I've been I've been it's been a pain point for me at the beginning because, as I said, I, originally I'm also a mathematician. So, uh, beginning of my earlier developer career, it, it was mainly concentrated about building real world systems using machine learning. Okay, but the main focus was software, right? So it has been a huge pain point where I needed to learn not specific syntax that's unimportant that comes and goes but the approach of thinking and uh, solving problems from this computational side of things it's very useful training yeah i definitely agree so i'm seeing that we have already moved pretty far beyond the two hour mark so this is i think our one of our longest podcasts yet so so i think it's I'm, I'm not sure if yeah sorry yeah. I'm not sure if it's uh, if it's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> no, but, uh... I, I definitely had <laughs> found it to be an incredibly interesting conversation. So I would thanks likewise uh, wrap it up now slowly. So thanks again for for joining us. It was I think we covered a lot of ground and a lot of very fascinating ground, and you definitely changed my mind. Like I learned a lot of new things. No, likewise, thank thank you for inviting me. I, I had also a lot of fun. Uh, we definitely touched upon a lot of such subjects, mainly revolving around longevity and AI. Um, it's it's been super interesting, and I think I also have a couple of things to think about <laughs> yeah, afterwards. Nice. And I'm I'm curious where your company is headed and your product is headed. So maybe we can like do this again sometime when once new insights have come around and, and the field has changed a little bit. Sure, happily happy to do that. <laughs>